0: Um, So this week, we're going to be studying the Bible again. This is something we do every time that we gather. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians. We're in a series right now called True Unity. Um, What's been really amazing to me and encouraging, I should say, is how even before any of this happened, we made plans to be studying together as a church certain things that have really been a blessing to us in this pandemic. So uh, several weeks ago when all this started, we were studying uh, prayer and how to be a praying people. And that was really helpful for us going into this pandemic and time of isolation. And now we're studying the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians called True Unity, True Unity. This week, we're gonna be finishing chapter three and starting chapter four. And the sermon title this week is Unity Seems Foolish. Unity Seems Foolish. And again, Paul is hitting a lot of the same thing uh, themes from last week. He's picking those back up. This week, it's Unity Seems Foolish foolish. And we'll be in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 4, 7. Um, So last week, at the end of the section last week, we saw that trying to be wise in our flesh destroys the church's ability to function as the temple of God. Remember what he was talking about last week? He said, we're made to be the temple. We're made to be the place, the people that displays who God is. And that's our brokenness, pointing to God's holiness, and the grace that he gives us through Jesus on the cross. And so as we give ourselves over to the cross as our primary means of hope and identity, that allows us to show people who God is. It allows us to project what is true, and that actually produces unity. But when we are arguing and fighting, like he's talking about in Corinth, when we're focusing on secondary issues instead of focusing on the primary issue of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus, then that causes disunity. But further, that disunity makes it difficult for people to see who Jesus is. And so this reminds me of a funny story from The Wizard of Oz. Anybody seen The Wizard of Oz? It's a classic movie. There's a scene when they finally get to see the wizard. And when they see the wizard, there's this giant head projected up in the air and it's all like weird and scary in a booming voice. And this little dog, Toto, Dorothy's dog, goes and he grabs the curtain with his teeth and he pulls back this curtain to reveal that it's this little, tiny, humble little man pretending to be a big, great, powerful wizard. And in these, uh, strange, the strange line, the wizard says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain." Well, that's, that's what happens when we divide up over secondary issues. Uh, we are saying, no, 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 don't look at me. I wanna project myself as big and powerful. We think that the secondary issues and the leaders and the parties that we follow are gonna make us big and powerful when actually being who we really are, letting people see behind the curtain that we're humble, that we're foolish. It seems scary. It seems crazy. That's what's actually gonna cause unity. That's what's actually gonna produce a people who are different, but who are weak and need Jesus as their savior. And so we need to learn to be that man behind the curtain to, to let people see who we really are and see that our only hope is Jesus. Our hope is not in whatever tribe we follow or whatever secondary issue we associate with. Our, our identity is in Jesus. So let me read the text here. I'm gonna pick up, I'm actually gonna pick up in verse 16. Verse 16 of chapter three, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So again, reminding the church, God's gathered people, our purpose is to be a people that display who God is, a temple of God. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before The Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So the title of the sermon this week is, Unity Seems Foolish. Paul's laid out again and again that unity comes from humbling ourselves and placing our hope in Jesus and what he's accomplished for us through the cross. And so Paul says in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool That he may become wise. Paul's saying if if you actually unify around Jesus, it's going to feel foolish. It's going to seem foolish to be united in Christ. But that is what we're being challenged to do. So as we move through the text this morning, I thought about calling it uh, How to Find Unity in Three Impossible Steps. Um, He gives three steps for us to take to be unified, which seem foolish but they will lead us to the cross. Those steps are to steward the mysteries, to reject human judgment, and to stick to the text. To steward the mysteries, to reject human judgment, and to stick to the text. And so that's what he's calling us to. Again, all of this will feel foolish. It'll feel like we're coming undone. It'll feel like we're being exposed, like the little wizard and people are finding out how weak and small he really is. And you know what? That is part of what's gonna happen. People are gonna realize more and more how weak we are, but they're gonna see how great Jesus is if we follow this path. So let me pray for us and ask God to meet us as we study his word together. God, thank you that you give us your word. Thank you that you teach us. Thank you that you are our fortress and it really doesn't matter what others think of us, only what your judgment is, Lord. And so we pray that we would be a people who are just devoted, who are trusting absolutely in you and what you have to say about us. Thank you, God. Help us. Join us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the big idea is that unity seems foolish. Everything in us, everything in our flesh is going to say, no, I got I to trust in my flesh or I got to trust in the powers of these people that seem important and seem like leaders. And Paul's saying, no, that's really not what leadership is. Leadership is actually being a servant and trusting in Christ. The church's role is, is really to look like a fool in the eyes of the world as we trust in Jesus as our one true fortress. So unity seems foolish, but the way to find real unity in this world is to trust in the cross, and again, he gives us these three steps. I joked, uh, you, you want to name it three easy steps, but really, these are three impossible steps from from the perspective of our flesh. We've got to steward the mysteries, the mysteries of the gospel. We've got to reject human judgment. That means not really caring what people say about us. And then finally, we've got to stick to the text, be more about God's word than we are about the opinions of people. So the first thing we want to see is that we should steward the mysteries. We see this in verses twenty one through chapter four, verse two. So look again at this section. And when I say steward the mysteries, this means a steward is someone who care is a caretaker. A steward is someone who's like taking care of somebody else's stuff, right? Like, Your house sitting at someone's house. That means you're taking care of their house, but it's not really your house. And that's how we have to see ourselves with the gospel. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the cross. We've been entrusted with that and we need to be good stewards of it. Are we going to use it to bless others? Are we gonna care for it? Are we gonna be good stewards? Here's the way I'd like to summarize this. We should be about Jesus and be willing to let everything else be secondary. We should be about Jesus and be willing to make everything else secondary. Uh, so he's continuing on from the section I read earlier about being a fool. He's like, it's gonna feel like you're becoming a fool. It's gonna seem like you're becoming a fool. And then in verse 21, he says this. He says, so let no one boast in men. So let no one boast in men. Don't don't find your hope, your power, or your wisdom in men. It's gonna feel foolish. Don't boast in men. He goes on, he says, for all things are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. He says, in Christ, we have everything. When we saw the same concept in chapter one, I remember when I was first studying this, I was like, Paul, is, is that really what you mean to say? Because it sounds too good to be true. If you trust in Jesus, if he is your Lord and savior, then he is your fortress and it is too good to be true. One of my old pastors used to say, it's too good to not be true. It's too good To not be true. That's why we call it the good news. That's what the word gospel means. It's good news. God has given Himself for us. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. All is yours. So then, in chapter four, he continues this train of thought. Chapter four, verse one. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, that word for uh, servant that he says before he moves on to steward, he'll he'll kind of come back to steward multiple times. But he starts with the word servant, which is a special word for servant. Um, literally, it means under rower. So it would have been like a galley slave. Uh, so this would have been like the lowest of the low. So it was a way of saying a very low, low servant. That, that's what he's saying. He's like, don't, don't think of us as important leaders. Don't think of us as like better than other people. Think of us as this low, low servant, this under rower, this galley slave who is rowing the boat underneath and nobody sees them. They just see the top of the boat moving along. Well, that's how Paul says leadership should be understood. Leaders are not special people. Leaders are people that are serving up Jesus. Last week, I used the image of a waiter. You're serving the food. The food is the point, not the servant, not the waiter. And then he shifts to this other word, steward. Like I said, steward means someone taking care of somebody else's property, someone who's managing someone else's business. This is Jesus' business, it's not our business. And so we want to steward the mysteries that he's given to us. And so he says, regard us this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And again, remember we've seen this phrase before. Mystery in Christianity means something revealed. So this is the kind of mystery that's uncovered. It's not the kind of mystery that the other first century mysteries were, which pointed out how smart the people were that were in the secret society. That's often how we use secrets and special knowledge today in the same way in the first century. It makes me better than you because I've read more and I know secret things. Christianity is different. It says, God gives it away to the humble and to the weak and to the small and to the frail, which again is why it seems... So foolish. So we have to steward these mysteries. We need to share them. We need to unveil them because that's what God is about. Verse 2, he says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's the whole point of a steward, is to be faithful, is to continue to take good care of the mysteries, this good news, this secret unfolded in Jesus that we've been entrusted with. Verse three, but with me it is a very small thing. Well, I'm gonna stop. We're not gonna do verse three yet. So It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. How do you see your relationship to the truth of the gospel? Is the truth of the gospel, well, let me say it this way. Um, It's my job to preach at the church and to teach the Bible. That's a role that I get to have. But is it just my job to be a steward of the truth? Or is it the church's job to be the stewards of the church and the stewards of the truth? Is it every member of Christ's job? To, to hold out the mysteries, to be stewards of the good news of Jesus? Paul is arguing here from himself as an official leader to the rest of the church body. He's saying, look at me. I am the leader. Everybody knows I'm the leader and I'm just a servant. That means all of you are servants. Do you see his logic here? He's not saying leaders don't exist. He's just arguing from the obvious leader to everybody else being a leader. Last week, we talked about how really everyone is supposed to be a leader in the body of Christ. We're all priests in the body of Christ. We're all representing God to other people. And so it's not just the leaders, but Paul makes the argument from the leaders. He says, see, even the leader is just a steward. Even a leader is the waiter serving up the food. So that means the whole church is just a steward. The whole church are just servants serving up the food. We we used the image last week of a waiter I Googled uh, chefs, so I think we have a picture of a chef you can throw up there. It's, I'm not seeing on the screen anything. Is anything showing? It's good? Okay, I just wanted to make sure stuff was showing, because it's going like, to keep running in my brain. Okay, they have it. Y'all have it at home, but I can't see it. Okay, just wanted to make sure. I couldn't stop thinking about it. Well, I was Googling chefs and waiters, and I found uh, this uh, chef named Eduardo Jordan. He's like an award-winning chef. Um, And I started actually reading his story. It was really interesting. Um, He's a Southern black chef, but he trained in a European cooking school. So his first restaurant, he was all about the fine European cuisine. And he kind of established himself being known for European cuisine and being known for fine food. And he said he didn't want to get pigeonholed as a Southern black chef, right? Because that's where he grew up. So he kind of rejected his heritage and was serving up this other fine cuisine. But over time, as he became established and became known for great food, Then he was able to make this shift and say, now he he serves a lot of traditional southern black cuisine, he serves European cuisine, he he serves all kinds of cuisine because he's not really about any particular place or type of food or type of cuisine. He's about good food. That's the bottom line. He's about stewarding good things. He's about giving good things to his customers. He wants to give them the food. And so He's, over time, it's become less and less about his own identity and more and more about what is best for the people out there. Here's the beautiful thing. When we are, and I don't even know if he's a believer, but when we are solid in our identity in Christ, we can be like Paul who will say in chapter nine, I can be like my own heritage when that blesses people and I can be like someone else's heritage when that blesses people. When it comes to secondary issues of culture and style, the church is free to be just about anything because ultimately we're about Jesus. And the culture and the style and the heritage doesn't define us. And so it's this incredible freedom where we can actually enjoy the heritage that we came from and we can enjoy someone else's heritage also. So he's saying, make your primary identity in the gospel, in who Jesus is. And then the secondary issues are less of a big deal. So be about Jesus and then be willing to be wrong about secondary issues. Be about Jesus and everything else will be secondary. But if you're really about Jesus, then it gives you a freedom to even be wrong on things, right? Here's the thing I've been frustrated about with the whole coronavirus thing. And this is just the larger kind of polarization of our culture right now. I feel like, I may be wrong, but I feel like, and this is probably because this is sinful tendency in my own heart. I feel like a lot of people are really, really worried that there's going to be a, an unmasking later on or a uh, you know, digging up of more truth later on and we're going to be found out that we've done the wrong thing. <gasps> oh no, we made a mistake. You know what? If, if we're safe in Christ, that's okay. We can make the best decisions we know how to make today and later on, if we figure out we were wrong, okay, we were wrong. We're going to do the best we can try to love our neighbors, try to serve our Savior because our identity is found in Christ. So be about Jesus ultimately, steward the mystery of this God who is for you, the mystery of this gospel, steward that gospel and make that your primary identity and the primary food that you're serving up to others. And then it gives you a great freedom to be uh, less concerned about other issues and possibly even wrong about other issues. Uh, Francis Schaefer had a great uh, outlook on just our humility as stewards of the mysteries of the gospel, as stewards of, of God's sovereignty and his greatness over it. Um, Jerem Bars was a lecturer that I had in seminary and he was a friend of Francis Schaeffer's and Bars said this about Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer would say that we each have to bow to God three times. So as stewards of the mysteries of God, the way we actually live that out is we're actually bowing to God. We're saying, God, it's, it's you. I'm a steward of what of what you're doing. I'm not a steward of my own self or my own heritage. I'm a steward of, of you, God, and this message that you've given me. Schaeffer said, we bow in three ways. We have to bow first as a creature, for though we bear the glory of the divine image, we're also totally dependent for life and breath and everything on our creator. Secondly, we have to bow as a sinner, for we are in daily need of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ to take away our uncleanness. And then we have to bow thirdly, as those who are to be taught by God as a, as a learner. He's a God who has truth to tell us in his word. We don't have this truth by ourselves. So Schaefer is saying, there are, these are three different ways we have to bow. In other words, I'd paraphrase this and say, our whole life is just a continual bowing and humbling ourselves because we're stewarding, stewarding the mysteries of God. We're saying, I'm just a servant. I'm an under rower. God's truth is what's most important. So as creatures, we, we bow and pray at meals and at birthdays and at hospitals. And when our friends are sick saying, God, we're just creatures. We, we can't even survive without you. We thank you for providing for us and taking care of our needs. Um, in the, the Lord's prayer, this would be the line, give us our daily bread. And then secondly, as sinners, we bow in confession and in worship Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others, Lord. We, we bow before God as a God who forgives us. We're stewards of the mysteries of forgiveness through the cross, that Jesus took our sin on the cross and gives us his resurrection life. And then finally, we bow as learners. We bow as learners. Lord, lead us not into temptation. We, we bow by saying, Lord, you guide me, you instruct me through your word. We bow in Bible reading. We bow in prayers for wisdom, prayers for guidance. Prayers for every decision that we make. So Schaefer would say, we bow in these three ways, as creatures, as sinners, and as learners. This is a practical application of of stewarding the mysteries of God, saying, you know what? It's not about my wisdom, it's about God. I'm a servant, he is God, so I'm always humbling myself before him. So the next thing that I want us to see is that unity in the cross seems foolish, yet we can begin to find that unity as we reject human judgment. So the second point is rejecting human judgment. Um, Tim Keller talks about this in a book that we did a couple of years ago together as a church called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a really small book. I encourage you to, to order it, or I think you can get an audible version of it. It's not very long, but it's on this section of scripture. And he talks a lot about this idea of rejecting human judgment. In verse three, he says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I love that verse. With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. He's not the kind of person that says, I don't care what you say because I like myself and I have good self-esteem. He's not saying that. He's saying, I don't even judge myself. I depend only on the judgment of God. So verse four, he says, for I am not aware of anything against myself but I'm not thereby acquitted, right? Just because I have a clean conscience doesn't actually make me holy before God. Verse five, uh, excuse me, it is the Lord who judges me. So if I don't know anything against me, that doesn't mean I'm actually acquitted for it is the Lord who judges me. Verse five, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. And so there's a sense that Paul is referencing that we have a settled judgment now, it's given to us in the cross. So it's the Lord who judges me and he's judged Jesus. So I'm placing my faith now in what he's accomplished through the cross, that Jesus really has taken away my sin and that Jesus really has given me his resurrection life. And that frees me to not worry about other judgments. And then he says, in the end, there will be an ultimate judgment where that is either confirmed or denied, when the hearts will be revealed, when we'll see who's just faking it and actually trusting in themselves and who is actually trusting Jesus. So Paul is saying we should reject human judgment. We should only care about God's judgment. And the gospel, the good news is that you can look at Jesus on the cross and you can say, that's God's judgment for me. Jesus was judged in my place. And that frees us to, again, neither be caught in cycles of shame or positive self-esteem where we're too worried about what other people think. My wife and I watched a judgment movie this week called Just Mercy. It was a great movie, and spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil the ending for you. Walter McMillan started to feel guilty the longer he was on death row. He was wrongly accused for murdering someone he did not murder. He was on death row. He was about to be executed. And he expressed in the movie, Jamie Foxx uh, played him. I think I grabbed a picture of Jamie Foxx too. Um, he, uh, he said, I, he started to feel guilty, right? Like he started to doubt himself even, knowing that everybody else thought he was guilty. Th- there's this thing that we fall into as people Even if we know it's not true, we start to believe what other people say about us. And he's expressing that. And then there was this moment again, spoiler alert, this moment where the charges were dropped, where he was declared acquitted, innocent, whatever the technical term is in in that story, but it was cleared, it was shown for all to see that he wasn't the murderer, that they didn't really have evidence against him. Well, we have that in the gospel. We actually are guilty, but we're quitted because Jesus takes the judgment for us. And so then we can have the same freedom that Paul describes here, where we we don't actually care that much what people think. And it's not a selfish, I don't care because I'm better than them, right? It's not that kind of, I don't care. It's a, I care so much about what Jesus says that that frees me. And so Keller says this in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says, the self-forgetful person would never be hurt particularly badly by criticism. That was really helpful for me to hear and and pray for me that I would be that kind of leader as we lead in uncertain times. The self-forgetful person would never be hurt particularly badly by criticism. It would not devastate them. It would not keep them up late. It would not bother them. Why? Because a person who is devastated by criticism is putting too much value on what other people think or other people's opinions. The world tells the person who is thin-skinned and devastated by criticism to deal with it by saying, who cares what they think? I know what I think. Who cares what the rabble thinks? It doesn't bother me. And that, just so you know, is not the right way (laughs) to respond. Um, That's the self-esteem. Like, I'm better than them. I don't care what they think. They're stupid, right? Keller goes on. People are either devastated by criticism or they are Not devastated by criticism because they did not even listen to it. They will not listen to it or learn from it because they do not care about it. They know who they are and they know what they think. In other words, our only solution to low self-esteem is pride, but that is no real solution. Both low self-esteem and pride are horrible and hurt everyone around us. Neither one of those are solutions pride in self or despair and low self-esteem. Neither one of these are real, real solutions. We've got to care only about what Jesus says about us. So my question for you is, have you come to that point of really understanding what justification means? Justification is not just manipulating you at a camp or a church to pray a prayer so that you would have fire insurance, not worry about going to hell or have some sort of display of religiosity, justification is God looking at you through Jesus and saying, I see you as just. I see you as righteous. I delight in you. That's what justification is. That's what belief in the gospel is. It means you are believing what God says about you. You're believing the judgment that he has made in Christ. Are you believing that? Paul is saying here to the Corinthians that if you are beginning to find your self-esteem in the party you belong to or the blogs that you read or the decisions that you make or the opinions of people and what they think about you, if you're finding your identity in those things, then you are not finding your identity in Christ and you are a very dangerous ground. And Paul has even more concern than just our justification before God. He also says that the church's whole role is threatened here because the point of the church being God's people is to say, yeah, I'm a little guy behind the curtain, but my hope is in Jesus. Instead of inflating ourselves and saying, look at how big and how great I am because of all these things I do. The cross is sure. Everything else that we might put our faith in in this world is, is sketchy, it's shaky, it's unstable. Um, emotionally, when we trust in the judgment of God instead of trusting in other people's judgments, it gives us peace, because no one else's opinion really ultimately matters as much as God's. It also allows us to be kind and serve others because no one else's opinion really matters, right? We're free to serve others in love. We're not serving people to manipulate a response out of them. So that's real freedom to love people and serve people. The current crisis is complicated. The current pandemic issue is complicated. And my opinion on all this is everybody is a little bit wrong. That's why we really need to trust in Jesus because none of us can, can make it by how right we are. None of us are gonna figure it out and solve the problem on our own. That's why we need Jesus. And if we're, if we're really confident of what he says about us, then that's gonna free us to, to take risks and take steps and do what we can do, serve others, to love our neighbors. Even though other people might think we're doing the wrong thing, we're just gonna try to obey God, obey our leaders, and glorify him. We are right in Christ, not in how smartly we align with the right tribe or political opinion. All right, the last thing that we want to see is that we are called to stick to the text. Again, this seems foolish. Unity in the cross seems foolish, but we see here that sticking to the text is really what will help us to be unified and help us to display who Jesus really is. So we'll look at verses six and seven. Verse six and seven, he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us to not go beyond what is written, to not go beyond the text. So he says, I'm, I'm taking my life and I'm taking Apollos's life, your two beloved leaders. And I'm saying, look at our lives. We're really just stewards. We're not special. You don't get an identity by being close to us. You get your identity by the judgment of God. And he says, so I'm taking our, our lives as examples and I'm saying, don't go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what's written do not go beyond the text, the word, the scriptures, the good news of Christ. It says, don't go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So Paul's saying, when you boast as if you didn't receive it, but you grabbed it by aligning with the right leader or opinion or policy or tribe, you're placing your stock and your identity in, in your flesh in what you can do or what someone else can do for you. And he's saying that leads to you being puffed up. He uses this word puffed up that would have been the same word. It was like a medical term for uh, like your belly being puffed up if someone was dying or something. You know, like it's, it was a, a grotesque term. In our world, I think the easiest, simplest way to understand it is a, a balloon. Have you ever blown up a balloon and then it explodes because you blew it up too big? Bigger than the balloon wanted to become, right? The balloon couldn't handle it. It wasn't strong enough for that kind of puffing. I grabbed a picture of a water balloon smashing on someone's face. Have you ever been smashed by a water balloon? It's a demonstration of something breaking apart. It's a demonstration of something falling apart, not being what it's supposed to be. And, And that's what we do when we imitate the wizard and the Wizard of Oz. And we're hiding behind a curtain and we're projecting a puffed up image saying, look at how great I am. Look at what I associate with. Look at what I say. Look at what I do. Paul's saying, no, just stick to the text. Just stick to what God has written. Stick to what God has said. And so as a church, we're always gonna be that kind of church. Um, A a question for you, as many of the members of our church, we we move regularly to different places all over the country. As you look for a church, look for a church that lifts up Jesus and sticks to the text. Instead of just a pastor's random ideas about Jesus, what does the word say to us about Jesus? I think a good diagnostic for churches too is we're in this weird time where everybody's fighting about everything and Paul's talking about division here. Uh, one good check is that if, if we're a healthy church that's sticking to the text, I think we will be simultaneously accused of being overly gracious and overly law-abiding, Right? I think, and and this has happened to us, so I'm encouraged by it. I think as we are accused from both sides of being overly generous and joyful and gracious and free, and we're also accused of being overly strict and rigid and obedient, if you're getting attacked from both sides, chances are that's because you're sticking to the actual text. You're not just aligning with one of those camps because if all the accusations come on one side, chances are you've just aligned with the camp. But we're gonna try to stick to the text. In our own lives, how can we apply this? Well, I think a way for us to think about this, uh, to maybe diagnose, am I sticking to the text and what the text says, is by looking at times when we break commandments, right? Times when we hurt people or lie or murder or steal or cheat or lust or covet. When you're breaking commandments, that's a good sign that you're not really sticking to the text and what God has to say about you, but you're falling for some other false power. You're falling for the pleasures of some false savior, false God, instead of what God says about you. The way Martin Luther used to say it is, whenever we violate or break it, one of the 10 commandments, it's because we've broken the first one first. The first one says, have no other gods. Only the true God loves us and shows us grace in Jesus. If we have some other God, they're gonna make us a slave and we're gonna end up breaking other commandments. Another one is just unwanted emotional outbursts. Do you, do you find a particular emotion just breaking out in your life? whether it be sadness, depression, anger, ambivalence, being stoic. What are the emotions that you're, yes, stoic is an emotion. What are the emotions that you express, right? Being numb is an emotion. It's saying, I can't handle emotions. Being super sad is an emotion. Being super angry is an emotion. What are the emotions that you're expressing? And those are like little strings that connect back to your heart where you might be walking away from the text, where you may not be sticking to the text and the justification and the forgiveness and the love that we have only in Jesus and only through his cross. It it seems foolish to trust in the cross and cross alone, but that's the only thing that will really unite us. And that's the only thing that will enable us as God's people to show who Jesus really is. The more we align with a certain party or tradition, the more we're just gonna point to that party or that tradition. The more we align with Jesus, the more we're gonna help people to see him and his goodness and his grace. And the more we're gonna see it ourselves. Unity seems foolish because it's not about us. And so we'll just wrap up here. I I think deep down, there's a part of us that that thinks, if if I can't fight and scrap for my own identity, then I'm gonna cease to be. And so it seems foolish to be unified around Jesus. We feel like we've got to divide up so that we can find our identity in tribes or opinions or groups or traditions. But Paul's reminding the Corinthian church here, no, it seems foolish, but it's the only true wisdom. It seems like weakness to entrust yourself to a dying savior on a cross, but it's actually the real power of God to save us and transform us. We have to ask ourselves, can I survive if I'm not focused on myself and my own survival? And the good news of the gospel is yes, yes, you can. It seems foolish, it seems weak, but if you trust Jesus, that's where you will find true wisdom, true power, and ultimately, as we've been talking about in the series, true unity. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you call us to point people to you and not to ourselves. And God, I pray that you would teach us how to do this As I joked, it is an impossible task, but your spirit enables us to. It's an impossible task to not be selfish, to not fight for our own survival, but your spirit allows us to trust you instead of trusting ourselves. So God, give us more of your spirit, fill us up with you so that we can follow you, we can trust you, we can love you, and we can point other people to you, as Paul is is pointing the Corinthian church. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. Continue to work through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.